You're listening to the Inside the Mix podcast with your host, Mark Matthews. Hello and welcome to the Inside the Mix podcast. I'm Mark Matthews, your host, musician, producer, and mix and mastering engineer. You've come to the right place if you want to know more about your favorite synth music artists, music engineering and production, songwriting, and the music industry. I've been writing, producing, mixing, and mastering music for over 15 years, and I want to share what I've learned with you. Uh, hey folks, and welcome back to the Inside the Mix podcast. And in this episode, I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, which is Brandon Gantz, aka One Equals Two. Now, One Equals Two combines the melodies of synth pop, the dissonance of noise rock, and the energy of dance punk to create the indie rock electro pop of the future. And he's going to share with us his uh, his musical journey, the story behind One Equals Two, and the creative processes behind the debut album Dead Pixel, which was released January twenty second, two thousand. And 21. Brandon, thanks for joining me today. And how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks a lot, Mark. Really uh, excited to be here. So I appreciate you having me. No, anytime. Mate. I'm excited to get into this one. It's going to be a great, great chat here. Uh, just for our audience listening, where are you joining us from? I'm actually up in Scotland. So I'm uh, closer to you than you probably assumed based on my accent. Uh, but yeah, I'm I... just uh, just up in uh, Calendar in Scotland, which is right on the edge of the Highlands. So uh, we just we actually just moved here two weeks ago. So just got the oh, studio wow. set back up again and uh just getting settled in here in our new town amazing yeah i i wouldn't have i wouldn't have pigeonholed scotland obviously with the accent but <laughs> bit living in the uk myself uh it's a tragedy that i've never actually visited scotland and it's something on my hit list of things to do because the oh wow just, not even during the pandemic when you couldn't uh fly anywhere that's i figured a lot of people from down south came up during that time no, no. What you find is I live in the southwest of England and um, we have a lot of people that headed our way um, during the pandemic because of the scenery, <laughs> much like, I guess, with Scotland, you know. So we saw an influx of yeah, people come in. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So what I'd like to start off with uh, is a bit about sort of your musical life prior to one equals two. So having gone and done my sort of due diligence, I see on, on in your bio there was sort of a grunge period and uh, sort of a rock period as it were so if you could just give our audience a bit of information on your musical background and how it all started yeah sure i um you know i started violin in elementary school primary school i guess you would call it here and um you know i think that was more forced than uh, a choice but i i learned how to read music which then served me well later in life which i was thankful for um so yeah it wasn't until i was about 10 that uh i got super into nirvana because i was that was you know I'm a, I was born in the 80s, so 90s mm. was uh, all Nirvana. And uh, yeah, just I, I remember the day so vividly. I was at my buddy Andy's house and there was like a, a guitar magazine and uh, just the tablature was in there for I think it was Heart Shaped Box. So this was in utero period. And um, I just played those first three notes of Heart Shaped Box on the guitar because I figured out the tabs pretty easily. And then that just changed everything. I was like, whoa, I, I could play Nirvana songs. This is amazing. Um, so it all started with guitar and then, then, yeah, you're right. It's a big grunge period and, you know, playing in garage bands with, uh, my brother who is an, actually an excellent drummer and, uh, lots of friends and yeah, mostly just rock to be honest. Um, it wasn't until college that I started teaching myself how to play piano. So like I said, I could read music from my violin days and, uh, I loved classical piano and there was a piano in my dorm room at uni and, it was yeah i just started teaching myself all these like classical pieces which i loved and still play to this day um 
but it was then that I started getting into really getting into like more electronic music because I went um, and saw a band called The Faint and uh, just just randomly I had a buddy that was really into music at, at university and he uh, he said, hey, come see this band. They're really good. And it was just like the best night of my you know university career, really, because it was just like it was seeing like a rock band that I loved, you know, watching live rock music. But there's so much danceable energy that the whole crowd was just going crazy the entire show. Um, so much energy. The synthesizers sounded incredible. And that really sort of set the path to becoming obsessed with synthesizers and, you know, the electronic music that I make now. Amazing. Um, so touching on the synthesizers there, do you actually own any synthesizers out of interest? Yes, yes. I'm actually surrounded by them now. So I'm looking at uh, a, a OB6, sequential OB6 there. <laughs> A nice. uh, Moog Grandmother, uh, Arteria Drumroot Impact, uh, the Behringer TD3, um, a Moog DFAM, and then a Moog Spectrovox, which is something that hasn't been released, but I built at Moogfest 2019 and was in there soldering all for like two days with Moog engineers. And it's, uh, it's like a 10-band vocoder, and it's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> that so, is yeah, amazing. There's, there's more boxes of synths uh in the in the hallway but those are the only ones i could fit on my desk at the moment yeah uh for audience listening i can imagine this people probably salivating over the thought of being in a room surrounded by those synths i know i certainly am um unfortunately i'm not privy to that sort of arsenal of weaponry as it were when it comes to (laughs) (laughs) music that sounds amazing but no going back to your sort of your you're building up to where you are now in in terms of like the grunge period nirvana and the rock and then moving into classical it's very much a a similar pathway to a lot of interviewees and artists that I've interviewed, particularly with the rock element. There seems to be a nice correlation between rock and then moving into sort of that synth synth music in particular. So you mentioned there Nirvana. So my and and then the band was it called The Faint? Was that right? Did I get yeah, that the right? Faint. Yeah, that's correct. The Faint. Yeah. So my next question was: Was there a particular sort of song or album that sort of left an indelible mark on you musically? Oh, big time. So yeah. So like I said, it's really Nirvana was the first after you know michael jackson in the 80s like Mm. uh, billy jean was was my jam when i was a little kid but uh yeah once i entered my teenage years and like nirvana got to be a big influence that led to sonic youth which was then obviously like a bit more experimental rock um a bit noisier a bit more like hey i didn't know you could sound out of tune and still release music sort of (laughs) idea um and that eventually led to like even more out of tune sounding bands like uh, Polvo, which is like uh, math rock. Um, I went to I went to university at the University of North Carolina, and these you know Polvo is from Chapel Hill, so uh, that was a big band back then. And then the the band that really changed everything prior to seeing the Faint Live was uh, a band called Brainiac. So in high school, I got really into Brainiac, um, which is they're like synth punk, I guess you would call it, maybe. Mm. Um, but it's it's like definitely along the lines of like the noise rock sort of thing. But the stuff that he did with electronics just blew my mind. And I, di- I didn't even I still I'm still trying to figure out how he did a lot of it. Like he would send his voice through some synths and just totally uh, just totally messed with everything. And it was just like the most amazing sounding things that I've ever heard. So if I had to pick one thing, uh, one album, it would probably be Hissing Prigs and Static Couture. Um, and that was, yeah, one of Brainiac's best, um, but just absolutely incredible. And that was just like, 
I'm still on a mission to try to recreate a lot of those sounds <laughs> that I heard on those albums. And like, if if you watch live videos of them, they're just there's so much energy. They're they're first and foremost like a rock band, but you know he plays the synthesizer like nobody I've ever seen. Just uh and just yeah, lots of screaming, lots of weird glitchy effects on the vocals and things like that. So that was big. And then obviously a few years later, once I got to university, then I've the faint became a huge influence. And then after that, since then, like, um, I guess the biggest influence in my, like, I would say my adult life would be like stumbling across the knife and fever Ray and things like that. So, Mm. um, you know, I, that wasn't something I'd listened to prior to, you know, being in my thirties really. So, um, it was something that I've stumbled upon more recently, but again, like what Karen does with her voice, like just like making her sound like a man and things like that. Like a lot of that's been really influential and like, um, just trying to figure out how to destroy my voice in the most interesting ways possible. Because, uh, I, I think, I think, yeah, the, when you combine the synthesizers with the, the voice is, uh, is really exciting to me. We'll be right back. So I've got a hunch about a common struggle we all face, mastery. If you're an independent artist or music producer, you've probably encountered the frustration of masters that just don't hit the mark, right? They lack balance and refuse to play nicely across different devices and environments. Ever found yourself wondering, why don't my masters sound like my references? Perhaps you've spent countless hours attempting to master your tracks only to be unsatisfied with the results. Maybe you've tried every Silver Bullet plugin or even dabbled in AI. Or perhaps you're already working with an engineer, but you're eager to explore different possibilities. Well, here's the solution you've been searching for, Synth Music Mastering. I'm offering a game-changing opportunity with a one-time free test master for a limited time. Picture elevating your music with my unwavering commitment to quality and a personalized touch that you just don't get with the big mastering studios. The best part, it won't cost you a penny. Just submit your finished mix and let's see how we can transform your music together. Don't let mastering be a mystery any longer. Say goodbye to the frustration and step into a world of sonic excellence. Grab your free test master now, click the link in the episode description, or head over to synthmusicmastering.com. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? I think I, t- I totally echo that in terms of um, when it comes to manipulating and sound designs with the voice. It's something that I've started to do myself with my own productions of late, a, a recent song that I've been working on in particular, and sort of like seeing where I can take a voice rather than just having a, a sort of flat's the wrong term, just a standard sort of vocal line and actually processing it through the synths and, 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 and various manipulations to see what I can come out with. Um, and I think it just makes it more interesting as a whole. It's interesting you mentioned the knife there. Now, this is my, I'm stretching my musical knowledge here. But are they, is that a band formed by another band? Uh, I'm thinking Pendulum, or have I got the totally wrong band? Uh, I think you got the wrong band on this one. No. Uh, it's it's a brother and sister duo out of Sweden. Um, and they, they had a big hit called Heartbreaks. And it was only really a big hit because uh, Jose Gonzalez uh, did it for that adverts with the bouncy balls down the san francisco oh uh, yeah was big in america i don't know if it was big here but anyway yeah. i took that song and made it huge but his was more like an acoustic version and theirs is obviously more electronic synth based mm. um so yeah so now they're uh yeah they're a synth i don't they're not really doing much these days uh fever ray was what karen the the girl in the band she started a, a new band and uh even even she's not doing too much these days so um but yeah they're a brother sister duo from sweden 
Oh, <laughs> similar. There you go. <laughs> um, so that moves us on quite nicely then to sort of like the birth of, of one equals two. Um, so you've mentioned there about the influences and how you wanted to recreate those sounds and those and that, those, those sort of sonic manipulations, as it were. This, the name one equals two. Could you just give us a bit of background of where of where that one came from in particular? Sure. Yeah. No, it was uh, that goes back to high school. Um, I was always really good at math. I was top of the class in math and mm. always loved math and everything like that. And then uh, one day in one of my math classes, I forget what, what year it was in particular, but um, someone shared with me a, a proof that proving that one equals two. And when you read it, every step makes sense mathematically. Like it all, it all makes sense. And there's, there's a flaw in the proof that obviously is why one doesn't equal two obviously because if it did then all of mathematics would be pretty screwed but um yeah. it's hard to pick out unless you're unless you're really looking for it so it was just like these like i don't know 10 minutes of like thinking everything i knew was wrong and that feeling of like how could this be this doesn't make sense um and i always loved the look of just one equals two just next you know just the actual aesthetic of those characters next to each other um so i always expected when i finally got around to doing my own musical project that would be the first uh the first band name to use because yeah i love that feeling um but then again i, I love the aesthetic of it yeah i think it's a cool name and i like the, the way it looks on paper as well i think it's really really good initially i i, I went with the binary thought of um the binary vibe but then i realized it, it didn't make sense in, in in binary terms um <laughs> yeah so i quickly moved on from that so with regards to the inspiration behind one equals two, so you mentioned there about brands like Brainiac as an influence and um and the knife. So once again, through through research, I've seen that you've went down the, you've gone down what is called a, an ultra learning path. So would it be fair to say that one equal two was like a, an experiment in terms of ultra learning? Can you? Uh, I know that it's, it's quite a, a long concept, and there's probably a whole podcast episode dedicated to it. But can you just give our audience an idea or a brief overview of what ultra learning is? Yeah, big time. So that. The... So th this is a lifelong goal of mine. So, so just to give you a bit of a background of like mm. my aims for this project, um, my only goal was to have something that I was comfortable. I, I was proud enough and not embarrassed to release, to be honest. So it was like, if I released something, it didn't matter if nobody listened to it. Because if I got to the point of being confident enough to release it, then I that that was me meeting my goal. So this has been a lifetime, a lifelong goal of mine. Because music has played probably the biggest, you know, it, it's influenced my life more than pretty much anything else besides family and friends, to be honest. So, um, so music has always been like my thing, and I was like, I need to actually produce some. I can't just consume it because I love consuming it so much, but. I need to actually produce it because you know that's where it really gets interesting so um so this was a lifelong dream of mine but it was one of those things where um which we may talk about at some point but i this may be a good time to talk about it um mm -hmm. i was reading a book by carol dweck called mindset and it just recounted the story of someone who wanted to i think she wanted to be an author or something and she she's this one paragraph just smacked me in the face because it said it was like i don't even try to get better at writing i don't write i because anytime i write i worry that like my dream's gonna die because i'm gonna realize that i'm not good at writing and then i won't have the dream anymore so to protect that dream that i've had for so long i just don't pursue it because then i know the dream will always exist um but 
you know, obviously you're not going to, <laughs> you're not going to fulfill, fulfill your dream if you're not working towards it. Mm. And that's exactly what I was doing for my entire like twenties and most of my thirties. I was, I always had that dream and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to write that album someday. I'm definitely going to write that album. Um, but I was doing absolutely nothing to actually make it happen. And it was that paragraph in that book mindset that just smacked me in the face and was like, you're, you're guaranteeing failure and you're never going to hit your, hit this goal of releasing an album because you're not even doing anything. So once I realized that I was like, okay, I have to get serious about this. And, um, I, uh, I, I stumbled on a book called ultra learning and it was about, it was by this guy who, uh, he, he like, uh, went through the computer science curriculum at MIT in like a year and did it all self, self-taught learning and stuff and ended up, you know, doing all the assignments and passing all the tests and everything. And, and he was just writing about like how he tackles big projects. And I was like, okay, this is what I need to, to really focus my efforts because what I've been doing hasn't been working because I haven't been doing anything. Um, so I sat down and planned out this, you know, this whole this whole, uh, you know, program of what I was going to tackle and, you know, like, um, in ultra learning, he talks about like more active rather than passive. So rather than watching a YouTube video about a compressor, just open Ableton and, you know, start putting some sound through it and learn mm -hmm. how to use the compressor. Um, and same for writing rather than, you know, writing, watching another music theory video, maybe just sit down and start playing some chords and see what happens. Um, so I had all these different tasks that I could complete and they're all ordered in, you know, active versus passive and things like that. And, uh, yeah, so I, I had this whole structure in place and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so all yep. of my excuses were gone because I was locked in a flat in Edinburgh with my wife and we could go outside once a day to exercise and all the other time we had to be inside and it, 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 it it provided the structure that I needed, but really, to be honest, the thing that made the most difference was just forcing myself to sit in the chair for five hours a day. Um, well, not technically five hours a day, 25 hours a week. So I, mm. I spread it out over all seven days, but, but yeah, just sitting in the chair and forcing myself to be uncomfortable and to hate what I was producing and to feel like <laughs> the dream was going to die because I sucked at it and all of that stuff that's the only reason I made any progress. And, um, yeah, the, the ultra learning structure definitely helped focus my efforts, but really it was just forcing myself to be uncomfortable and to sit in that chair. And thankfully the pandemic helped because there was really no other good options to, to procrastinate with. No, thanks for that explanation. It's, um, I really like what you said there about the, um, the, the passive versus active in terms of learning and actually making progress because I, I second what you said there in terms of you can watch, for example, a video on a compressor and you could scour YouTube for hours upon hours watching all these videos and then make no progress whatsoever. Um, and I've, 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 I've done that myself where I've wanted to learn something new and I've just spent so much time just watching and consuming content and thinking, actually, I should probably just open up a DOW or pick up my guitar and then just try playing something and actually doing something. And then the key, I think, is there is the, like, failure is a good thing maybe failure is the wrong word but in but you learn from it mistakes experimentation and you learn from it and without doing it you never make progress um and i love the, oh, the idea of the growth growth mindset as well and moving from a fixed mindset of i can't do it to a growth mindset of i can't do it yet 
and then just keep going and going and going. Um, And I think it's something I would probably preach a lot on the podcast in terms of music and songwriting. It is just start creating something. And then the more you do it, the better you're going to get rather than think, actually, it's kind of like you're scared in a way, I guess, thinking about like what you said earlier about like, I don't want to do, I don't want to do it in case it doesn't work. That way the dream's always there, which is quite an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and and it's what I didn't realize was how much comes from just doing it. So you, you're not Paul McCartney. You're not going to wake up with blackbirds fully formed in mm-hmm. your head. Um, at least I'm not. So, so many of my great ideas have come from little accidents, like actually like starting recording on the wrong beats and then it, it, it's this whole different rhythm and or like leaning on the on the synthesizer and it's starting some arpeggio that you know i didn't intend and that's the stuff that i ended up really enjoying and none of that's going to come from watching a youtube video or just sitting around waiting for that inspiration to strike it's like yeah so much of the music has come from just happy accidents that came from me playing stuff that really sounded terrible but then something happened and then it's like oh that actually sounds cool and then building on that yeah, I agree. And I, I've done the same whereby I might have moved like a, uh, an audio file or, or, or chopped something up and, ac- and accidentally moved it and then re- re- repeated it accidentally. And I'm actually, you know what, that actually sounds quite good. Um, so I've totally <laughs> yeah. been there. One question I have is you mentioned there about sitting in a chair for um, five hours, 25 hours a week and being uncomfortable, which um, I think it's important that as artists you do that, you put yourself in uncomfortable situations to get to move yourself from outside of the comfort zone. Because I think that's sometimes where you can be most creative. Was there a turning point whereby you started to feel more comfortable in your production and producing? Yeah. So the way the way I tackled it, like I was so scared to even try at the beginning that I was like, okay, I'm sitting in this chair. I need to be doing something productive. What could I do that sort of sets me on the path of, uh, you know, what I want to do? And knowing that I was too scared to actually like really commit to trying to write my own stuff. So I was like, all right, well, what what kind of music do I want to create? And I thought about it and I was like, well, you know, like Sonic Youth, like I said, was a huge influence. And I was like, you know, that what their the feel that their music gives me, I love, but they're all guitar based and I love synthesizers. So I'm like, I want it to be a slightly more aggressive Sonic Youth, but all really cool synthesizer sounds rather than, you know, distorted feedbacking electric guitars. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm sitting in this chair trying not to just watch YouTube videos, trying to do something more active. So the first thing I'll try to do is I'll, I, I figured, well, I'll just pick a Sonic Youth song that I really like, cover it in the style of music that I want one equals two to be and see what happens. And it actually went really well. Like I, it, it went so well that I put that song on the album. So Tokyo Eye is actually just like, it's like a, maybe like number 14 or number 12 or 14 on one of uh, Sonic Youth's not even most popular albums. It's, uh, you know, it's like a, it's way down the track listing on Experimental Jet Set Trash and No Star. And it's just a really simple uh, guitar based song. And I was like, well, I want to just try to make it feel dancey, a bit more aggressive, amazing sounds throughout it. And um, actually, I had just bought a uh, Korg monologue synth just a monophonic really cheap or well, not really cheap but compared to like a moog or something like 200 i think it was like 200 bucks or something mono synth and i was like well i want to learn how to really use this synth but i also want to you know start making more progress on writing so i'll just cover this sonic youth song 
in the style that I want one equals two to be using just this synth and see what happens. And like I said, uh, I really liked how it turned out. I put it on the album and every sound on that besides my vocals and the, uh, you know, just the program drums uh, is a Korg monologue. And that's, you know, all the glitchy chip tuny sounds, everything about that song is just one single $200 synth. Wow. That's so cool. I love that. And I think it's great uh, in terms of you've got a $200 synth and you can create something that sounds really, really good. And it just goes to show that you don't need to spend extortionate amounts of money to create good music. And I threw experimentation with these cheaper cheaper synths and these, these cheaper uh, weaponry that you have. You can create these amazing sounds, which is brilliant. So it kind of moves on nicely to the next part of the of the of the interview, which is Dead Pixel, the album. So you sort of mentioned there about how the you had that transition, that turning point with um, your songwriting in terms of Sonic Youth. Can you tell our audience a bit about Dead Pixel itself? So we've sort of mentioned a bit of the concept and the idea behind it of um, the the ultra learning and the growth mindset. But as a, like a, an overall summary, what can the audience expect if they haven't heard it already? Yeah, so so Dead Pixel is again, it's a it's a combination of all of my influences, which I, I, like I don't know if a lot of people out there are similar to me, but I always felt like you needed to like hide your influences. And I came across this great, uh, I think it was a podcast episode, um, uh, which I can I actually wrote down before because I wanted to tell you about it. Uh, Creative Pep mm. Talk, episode two fifty, and it was just a random thing I was listening to one day. Um, and it, it was about how to find your style. And he said something in there that really like was a light bulb made, you know, made a light bulb go off in my head because he was like, don't, you know, don't, don't be, don't be scared of your influences because your style is just a unique sum of all of your influences. So yeah, you, you may think like, oh, I don't, you obviously don't want to rip anybody else off, but if no one else out there is taking influences from, you know, Sonic Youth and Brainiac and Polvo and The Faint and all my other musical influences. Like, I'm a unique sum of my influences. So rather than try to, like, I don't know, disown that in some way, you should instead embrace it and be like, yes, I need to I need to encapsulate that essence because that's me. That's that's who I am as a creative person that I am a sum of my influences and my sum is unique in the world because no one else has the exact influences I have. So, so that was, that was huge. Um, and that allowed me to like embrace it. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, this is great. I want, I want to sort, I want to have like that sort of atonal nature of like these noise rock bands that I grew up loving and like some of the math rock stuff. I want to have some of the aggression of like, you know, um, Nirvana and Sonic youth and nine inch nails and some of the harder stuff I like. Um, I want to have, you know, the dancey rhythms and like the danceable nature of like the faint and the knife and the weird vocal production of Brainiac and all these, all these sums of influences. And that's sort of what I really tried to just capture with dead pixel. And so dead pixel is, um, we haven't talked about like my actual background, but I'm, I'm a software developer. So I'm, you know, like I said before, I loved math growing up and then I went to school for computer science and then became a software developer um so dead pixel is 
sort of looking at technology through two lenses. Uh, obviously, I love it, and it's you know I I built a career off of it, and that career allows me to play with Moog synthesizers all day and things like that, and <laughs> it's enriched my life so much. But then, obviously, when we we're when I was writing the album, all of the things going on in the states, and you know the political and the the fighting and all the constant stress and everything of covid and uh the flip side of technology is also very bad so this is just a focus on that really is it just is me again it was me looking at myself i'm like okay well i'm a i'm a software developer so i have a unique perspective as as well so i rather than try to talk about something i don't know anything about like try to talk about something that uh is really interesting to me and i actually have uh, you know, I'm able to talk about it more intelligently. So that was the focus of dead pixel was like, if you've ever had a dead pixel on your computer screen, you know, that it's mm -hmm. like, you, you know, life sort of seems normal and you, you know, everything you're looking the pictures look normal and videos look normal, but there's just something in the back of your mind. That's like, something's not right here. And that, that sort of idea is what the whole album's about really is like, Oh, the, yeah, the, we all love this technology and we use it all the time, but it's uh, it's probably killing us inside <laughs> <laughs> and our societies. No. <laughs> yeah, that's such a cool way of putting it. I like the idea of the, what you said there about the dead pixel and how you sort of live there. It's there and it's like it's with you when you have it on your screen and it's not quite right, but you persevere with it anyway. And it's very much like technology in many, many strands. It's there. And it's probably doing something that's not quite right, but we, we go along with it anyway. Yeah, yeah, all too much. Let's take a quick break from this episode so that I can tell you about a free resource that I made for you. It's a PDF checklist that describes what you need to do to properly prepare a mix for mastering. So you've done the hard work and you love your mix, yet suitably preparing a mix for mastering is often overlooked by musicians, resulting in delayed sessions, excessive back and forth conversation, and frustration on both parts. I want to help fix that. So if you want this free resource, just go to www.synthmusicmastering.com as this checklist will help and guide you to make the mastering process as smooth, transparent and exciting as possible. So again, the URL is www.synthmusicmastering.com for this free preparing a mix for mastering checklist. Let's get back to the episode. Circling back to right at the beginning there, you mentioned about the Creative Pet Talk. Is that with Andy J Pizza? Yeah, it is actually, yeah. It is. I've, I list, I have listened to a, few, um, a number of those episodes. It's really good, isn't it? It is really good. I And, and you know what? I've only listened to, uh, I only found them right before the pandemic. And I usually just mm. listen to podcasts in the gym. And once I wasn't able to go to the gym anymore, I stopped listening to as many podcasts. Um, so I only, I only listened quite to maybe a handful of them. But that one, was, like I said, it changed everything because it, like before that i was probably trying to like come up with my own scales and stuff like oh i can't use the normal the normal scales that everyone else is using <laughs> i need to be completely unique and then it's like no that's stupid it's going to sound stupid just use the tools that everyone else uses and then you're just going to ch channel like the unique sum of your influences and it's going to come out unique because only you have those influences yeah what was the episode number again was it 250 you say Yes, two fifty. Yeah, two fifty. Cool. I'm gonna go. Go. I haven't listened. Admittedly, I haven't listened to the podcast in a while, but I'm gonna go back. It is. It's really good uh, for the audience listening. If you're ever in need of a creative pep talk, um, definitely go and check out that podcast. It's 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 uh, very good. 
And it's also, um, you mentioned there about being the sum of your parts in terms of your influences. I've, um, I do, do echo that and second it. I've, I've been in a similar situation whereby it being in, uh, in a metal band and in the metal scene where you're sort of perceived to be just a heavy, uh, a heavy metal band and you're supposed to just be just heavy music. And it wasn't until actually I started releasing music myself as an individual and much like yourself in terms of I got all these different influences coming from everywhere and then actually started to put them down onto onto proverbial paper, as it were, and creating something. And I think, like you said, you it's quite easy to hide your influences, specifically in metal as well. I mean, being in a heavy metal band, I'm, I'm a big Duran Duran fan and it wouldn't, it wasn't something I would shout about at a gig, you know. And it wasn't until I started doing my own music that I started to thinking, you know what, I like that band. I'm going to throw it in in the mix, you know, and bring all these other influences in. So it's quite liberating to have that. I don't know what you think. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And I would love to hear Metal Duran Duran. I think that would be fantastic. So, <laughs> yeah. You know what? On the way back from gigs, we'd always uh, having spent the whole day listening to metal and playing it. On the way back, it would generally be something along those lines or classic FM. Um, which I'm sure you got something when you were in the States, something equivalent. Um, but yeah. certainly it was because I cannot listen to it anymore. I need to move away from it and move on to something totally different, you know? Yeah. Um, but no, thanks for that explanation. It's really, really, really good. So you mentioned it earlier about the chiptune effects. Um, so you utilize a lot of computer and chiptune effects in, in the music itself throughout the album. And so those are all created were those created using the the cork all of them created using the cork only only for uh tokyo eye so everything in tokyo eye ah. is is the cork um everything else yeah. is one of the other synths mostly the mo grandmother uh that was my go-to for pretty much all the sound design on the album um the dfam actually i don't know if you're aware of this uh the drummer from another mother um which is just a small sim actually i can just unplug it um small semi-modular uh yeah little thing from moog um this thing is just incredible um mm. it just comes out with some some of the most amazing everything sounds great out of it and it's it in this it i would say that that inspired uh interpunked and null tag just just uh i just kept recording track after track i would just be tweaking knobs and just be recording recording and um yeah the dfam was was big big and um inspiring a lot of those sounds um but yeah no all the all this all the sounds on the album are analog synthesizers um i don't i don't think i used any i didn't use any vsts i had i had a pad vst before i got the ob6 but then i felt like i needed to i needed to get a polyphonic synth so i could put actual analog pads on there um which were totally not needed because they were way down in the mix anyway but that was my excuse to get an ob6 so that's that's uh that's how that happened <laughs> no i don't think as as musicians i don't think we ever need an excuse to go out and buy a new gear um, yeah exactly certainly when, <laughs> yeah and i think the audience listening would second that that's amazing so you actually create the whole album using analog synths. i think you're the first interviewee now somebody in the previous episodes may correct me on this but i think you're the first interviewer who's actually all their music is pure sort of analog synth that's amazing so not one vst what daw do you use out of interest i use ableton um so a lot of the drums were just ableton you know drum rack stuff that i was mm. putting together so the drums um like the actual like you know the things that sound like a kick and a snare and a hi-hat and a crash cymbal and things like that those were all um 
those were all Ableton stuff um, besides besides the live acoustic drums. But um, all the synth sounds and weird effects and builds and um, just the general weirdness of it uh, was all analog synths. Um, I did use Ableton's vocoder. So all the all the uh, singing on the album is me, even if it sounds, you know, pitch shifted. Um, so I used the Ableton vocoder for that because my my Spectrevox is only 10 bands, so it wasn't very intelligible. Um, so I would run it through Ableton's vocoder. And I think the grandmother was the thing that was behind it creating the sounds. Um, it's possible I used analog or something for that. So there may be a little bit of Ableton analog on there or operator, but uh, for the most part, it's, yeah, it's just all the analog stuff uh, around me. That's brilliant. Would you say then, um, it's in terms of the writing and creative process, I, d- I don't know how much you've done in the past with regards to using VATs, but would you would you say that it's you've, you're more creative using analog synths because you've got that th- those those tangible synths there in front of you, you're able to physically move dials and knobs and 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 plug and play as it were and patch things in and out. Would you say that it adds to your creativity? Oh, hundred percent. Like I said. Um... I, I should probably give the DFAM credit for Null Tag and Interpunct because it, that just pretty much wrote those songs for me. Um, obviously, through some vocal melodies over top of uh, Null Tag and things. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, like, a lot of, especially with these semi modular ones, like the, the Grandmother and then the Spectre Box and then the DFAM, they all have patch points. So I'm linking them all together, never knowing exactly what's going to happen. And Anytime the synth creates something that sounds cool, I instantly love it because it wasn't me that did it. Anything I create, I'm like, that's stupid. Why did I why did I create that? Just like, you know, that <laughs> internal artist voice that I'm sure everyone mm-hmm. out there has that's like, well, everyone else is a genius, but I'm an idiot. Um, so th- this solves that for me because it's like these machines will do something that I didn't expect with just a turn of a knob. Um, and then some really interesting thing comes out of it. So like I was actually writing yesterday and i just put a little beat on the dfam just a nice little rhythm that just had a nice like groove to it and then i turned up the fm knob and it started producing an actual you know a tone on some of the hits and i was like oh that sounds really nice and then that sort of then started leading to the harmonic content that i started writing today and you know it just came from that one tone on tweaking the fm knob on this little this little beat that was going on and that happens all the time and again i think it's because anything that happens by accident i love and anything i i intentionally do i don't like so that's why i just sort of keep uh yeah keep keep those happy accidents moving me forward yeah i like that happy accidents i think that's a great way of 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 explaining it um and certainly i think it sort of goes back to the growth mindset idea of just just doing something, doing something, moving something, playing something, and then out of that, the happy a- accidents occur. It's interesting that that you mention about um, how you're. We're almost we are as creatives our harshest critics, and um, without wanting to, you do compare yourself to other people. Did you when you started the project? This is a slight tangent now. Um, did you ever experience like imposter syndrome into when it came to songwriting, and then before you released it? Oh yeah, definitely. Um... Yeah, absolutely. I like. I, I still remember asking my brother. It was. I, I think I'd already submitted it. You know, uploaded everything to DistroKid by that point. And I remember asking him, 
um because my I, I would send my brother stuff because he's a musician and you know he's into the same music i'm into and i don't care if i look like an idiot in front of him and things like that so he's good to send stuff to but i remember asking him even after i uploaded it i was like are these actually are these songs are these is this actually are they are they actually songs like because i'd i'd been focusing on them for so long so intensely uh for like you know um, i don't know the whole all of 2020 and by then like it was it was just like when you say a word five times and by the fifth time it's like meaningless it's like am i saying that word right so yeah by the time i got to the end of it i was like are these even songs like am i going to put this out and people are going to be like oh no that's not just those aren't songs on the album what are you doing um so yeah i felt imposter syndrome the whole the whole way through luckily i had um luckily i i have an uh, another project where i sort of had to work through that over the last 10 years it's uh, a completely different project um but it, i got some you know good success and um and again, it was it was in it was in writing and podcasting like yourself. And it's like, who who am I? I'm not a journalist. I can't write. And and you know, I, I had to work through that for that project. So I know those feelings. So when it came to this project, I was like, okay, this is just like natural. You're gonna feel like an imposter. Everyone does, and some people hide mm-hmm. it better than others. But I think even the the greatest of the greats do. I was just watching. Actually, I was just watching a interview with Brian May from Queen, and. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about something and then he had just mentioned like a university and then he said he went back to school and he just, he had to throw in the fact that he got a PhD like, and it was like such a, like a um, self-conscious like thing to do. And I'm like, you're Brian May. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. Like you're a God. And here you are in this other area feeling like an imposter, like, I can't really talk about universities until I drop my uh, PhD on them or whatever he had, a master's or something. Mm. And I was like, that's so interesting. Like, you are a god to so many people and the best of the best. And here you are still feeling like an imposter in, in, in one aspect of your life. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's great to, that you can see artists at the level of Brian May and they're still thinking, you know what, I still need, I still need I've still got something to prove. Um yeah. And imposter syndrome is, is massive. I think like going back to the creative pep talk and other podcasts like that. And I think the underlying theme that I hear a lot is imposter syndrome. And I get it like with, with the podcasting, I, I started doing this February of last year. And it's quite, it was quite a daunting thing to do because I listen to podcasts and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, am I going to get anywhere near that sort of level of quality? But that's where the growth mindset came in again, like the running theme of, you know what, unless I give it a go, I'll never know. I could always think oh, I'll do it sometime in the future. And that when is the best time to do it? And it may never come. Um, but no, imposter syndrome is, is massive. I think. Um, and yeah, I think and thinking about, again, going back to what I said about the, like your unique sum of influences, your unique, your unique sum of ideas, your unique, unique mm. sum of all these things. So yeah, you're the only one that can be you. And I think that really helped along the way as well. It's like, well, I'm going to be the best of being me that I, that anyone in the world's going to be. So I'm just going to go with that. And yeah, some people aren't going to like it, which, you know, obviously isn't nice to be not liked or not respected, but as an artist, you just have to get past that because there's, yeah. <laughs> there's nobody out there that has a hundred percent of everyone who's listened to their music, love it. So you just got to get used to that. But yeah, you just keep saying to yourself, like, I am the best at being me and this is my unique uh, contribution to the world and uh, just focus on that, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I like that. I think it's a great way of putting it, a unique contribution to the world. Um, and I think that's a fantastic way of putting it. And I think it's a good way and a good way for audience to listening to to think when it comes to music creation. Because I know that there's a number of, uh, of listeners who are at that bit sort of like foundational stage of songwriting and it's and going through that daunting process like you mentioned there of actually i'll put this music together is it worthy of releasing um and my 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 sort of argument for one of a better way of putting it is just get it out there and see what people think but i have had uh, conversations in the past where others have said no keep it keep it under your under your under your hat till it's ready to release but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think if you've got something, you should release it to the world and get feedback, or do you, or do you think you should keep it under your lock and key until you're 100 percent happy with it? What What are your thoughts on that? So yeah, like going back to what I said at the beginning, my only bar for success was that I was happy and excited about it to release it myself. So I took myself to the absolute max of my abilities to get it sounding as great as I could possibly do. But I knew that if I tried for perfection, it would just never come out. And that was exactly the opposite of my goal. So, so yeah, my thought is do it as well as you can do it. Like I would, I listen to songs a million times and I, I feel bad for my wife. She was stuck in the same house as me. So she had to listen to songs a million times as well during the pandemic. But I would listen to things so many times and so many different speakers and anytime I heard any little thing that was annoying to me or I could tell wasn't great, I would fix it. And then I got to the point where there was none of that left. And I'm sure even now, uh, being a, a year and uh, a year and a half on, like I know that I'm better at producing than I was then. But that's just a snapshot of me at that time. And I'm comfortable with that because I'm hopefully going to get better because if I'm not getting better, then what's the point of keeping doing it? So... I did it the best I could. I got it to where I could at the max of my abilities at that time. And then I put it out and then now I'm working on something else. And yeah, hopefully that's going to be even better and it's going to sound even crisper and clear and everything's going to be amazing, even more amazing than what I was able to do last time. But, um, and, and, and again, I think that goes back to some of the bands that I grew up listening to, like the indie rock college rock, uh, stuff that I loved growing up where like, sounds like they just put one microphone into a terrible room and pressed record and like some of those albums are my favorite albums of all time and yeah some of their albums when they got more money they sounded a lot more polished and got better studios and better producers but i still love those early albums and even if they set you know i have to turn them up when they come on and spotify because it's you know not as mastered mm. as nicely and things like that so I think that helped too. It was like, okay, some of the stuff I loved growing up is way far from perfect. And the tools I have now in my little computer are far exceeding anything that they had in whatever studio they were paying like 20 bucks an hour to get into. Um, so that helped. But yeah, I think just being like, being okay with where you are, yeah, maxing out your abilities at that time and then just being like, okay, this is, this is the best I could do at this stage. And then, yeah, the next one hopefully be better because I'll be learning and growing. Yeah, I echo that. And it's it's something that I did when I started um, and releasing music. And if I go back and listen to those songs now, um, even songs I've released recently, I always listen to it and think I can pick something out that I'm not particularly happy with. But I know in my mind, I had to just stop 
there and <laughs> and put it to bed. Otherwise, I'd still be tweaking it now. And that's the sort of way the way I do things. I do very much what you said there. I'll listen to it in my car. I'll listen to it on a mono speaker for a laptop from my phone in my rubbish Bluetooth head um, in ear headphones that I've got, um, which accentuate the high end and it's horrific. But um, <laughs> That's so bad. That's so so bad. I thought my mix was bad, but it just turns out it was the headphones. But one one barometer, much like you've done there, I like to use is um, so you mentioned there about your your partner listening to your music and getting sick of it. But I use that as a barometer, so I'll play the music, and then if I hear my partner, my girlfriend, go around our our house like humming the main melody from the song, I'll know that I'm onto a winner. Um, and I've used that <laughs> nice. quite a lot. In the fact, that I think that's quite a, a nice way of doing it, um, and it seems to work saying that though she's not a massive fan of the music itself but there you go it's one of those things um <laughs> it, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i would caution people on that though because like there was there was one the last song on the album please rewind the demos that i was putting together first like i i knew what that was going to be i could i knew the how the parts were going to connect but i uh my wife was in the in the room during one of my uh writing sessions and uh she hated that song <laughs> she thought it was like terrible <laughs> But luckily, I kept going with it because I knew I could. I knew what I was going for, and now it's their favorite song on the album. So, I think there is risk in showing people too early um, because you don't want somebody to talk you out of something that could be really good. Um, but also, it's good to get people to to listen to stuff too. And yeah, like you said, if the opposite end of that, then you know you're on for a winner because if she's like yeah, singing along to it, and uh, there was a couple on the album, like Big Crush was one that she found herself singing to all the time and i was like oh good that's that's perfect that's uh you know that's gonna be a winner but but yeah i almost uh scrapped one of my favorite songs on the album um well no i didn't almost scrap it but it had had she had her way it would have been scrapped or uh early on the cutting room floor it's interesting you mentioned that because there was one song where i had that exact situation <laughs> and i played it to her she listened to it and she was just like, oh, I'm not keen on the vocal on that one. And then because I've been sort of on the fence and I was like, mm, yeah, I think you're right. And then we came up with the idea of putting it as a plan B. But you know what? Off the back of this, I'm going to go back and revisit it because nice. I'm sure I'm sure when I was putting it together, I was like, no, no, this is sounding good. This is going to go somewhere. But I never got to the mixing process. So there you go. I say, it. it's still on the cutting room floor. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go back. So audience listening, if you've ever been put off um, by someone with one of your songs, I do this off the back of this podcast go back and revisit it and let me know if you end up releasing it because i'd love to know because um i'm going to do exactly that nice i've realized the time is uh we're, we're, we're coming towards the end now but what i wanted to ask about so you mentioned bit crush there so there, there was a number of songs i wanted to pick your brains on but we'll, we'll, we'll sort of end it on bit crush can you tell us the, uh, the audience a bit around the sound sound writing uh, sound writing songwriting process and the sort of inspiration behind that and the vocal effects as well on that particular song. Yeah, sure. So that was uh, my wife and I were uh, <clears throat> we did when we moved from the States to Scotland, uh, we were in between jobs and things. So we took a, uh, some time to travel around the world. And we were on this like beautiful beach in Thailand uh, on the island of Koh Tao, just the most picturesque scenery you could imagine. And we watched this poor teenage girl spend an hour trying to get the perfect selfie of herself and every time she would take the picture she would just look at her phone in disgust and it was the it was the wildest thing that we saw on our trip probably it was like it was so sad in in so many ways and and 
it was like she didn't enjoy the beach. She didn't enjoy the weather. She didn't enjoy the scenery. And she may have got the perfect picture that made it look like she did. Uh, but it looked to us like the most miserable time at the beach I've ever seen. And it was probably like one of the prettiest beaches I've ever seen, too. So um, so so Big Crush was about that song, because like I said, I was going back like most of the songs on the album are about that sort of intersection with technology and Big Crush. Obviously, as a producer, you know, Big Crushing is sort of like reducing a very rich audio signal into something that's, mm. you know, very, um, you know, not a lot of information. And that's sort of what you know, technology is doing to us where a lot of people maybe don't even see people in real life anymore. It's just you are this representation of you on the on the Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever. And that is a very bit crushed version of you as a person. Um, so the song is all about that. And I was writing in the in the from the perspective of her. Um, and. And yeah, just just the idea of like, OK, I don't really like this love isn't really real. I'm just trying to be who you want me to be and show the world that we're this beautiful couple and things. And, uh, and that, that was the inspiration for a bit crush. And then obviously the lyrics then influenced the production of it. Um, because there's a few, um, very bit crushed, uh, um, sections of the song. Uh, the, the outro was always bit crushed. um, and that was a big, you know, just a descending into like less and less information until mm. it was just like really harsh and awful um, outro. But I um, when I was mixing it, I was working with I don't know if you've ever talked to Dom, who is a Grammy award winning um, Dom Morley. He's he runs the mix consultancy dot com. Let me let me see if it's dot com or dot co to EK. Um, but he is he lets you just send him tracks um mixconsultancy.com he's he worked on back back to black with wine amy winehouse he's he's a grammy award-winning engineer and it was amazing like i i would send him a track he would just reply with um a pdf like usually one to two page pdf of everything that he would change he'd be like okay i would on this synth i would duck you know, 2000 Hertz, because that'll let the bass shine through a little bit more where, where the bass is really sounding great. He's like, I'd bring, you know, the high end from maybe 4k up and bring the vocals up just to let him cut through the mix a bit better. Everything he would send me this PDF, which was like worth its weight in gold. As far as like, it was like a mixing university degree and, and it was perfectly tailored to what I was, all the problems I was banging my head against myself so it was like the most effective learning i've ever had and i would say i sent him i did it for every song on the album i learned so much about production um in the best way possible because like i said i was these are the songs i was working on and then he told me how to make them better and i didn't even know why they were bad in the first place until he told me so anyway so that was a long way to say that um on one of his suggestions he's like you have this really good, powerful introduction to the second verse. It's really impactful. But he's like, I would, I would bit crush that down so that it just like sounds like it's sucking in and then explodes into the second verse. And uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the song. So, um, 
so yeah, so the the actual lyrics ended up playing a huge part in the production of the final the final song. That's amazing, Don Morley. I admittedly not not heard of that service, but it's one I'm certainly going to go look at because, much like yourself, whenever it comes to actual mix down, I always bounce my uh, mixes to other producers and artists and get their feedback. Like like you say there. And some of the best stuff I've come up with is a result of someone saying, you know what, maybe you should put a high synth in here, or maybe there's too much going on, reduce it, remove some of that, some instruments there. So you've got a bit of night and day, but Don Morley. Yeah, that, that's it. Exactly. Like some of the, some of the, he was like, Hey, put some guitar down leading up to leading up to the big outro, even though, and you put it low in the mix, you can't really hear it, but you can feel it and you can feel that it's building and like stuff like that. Like how, how am I supposed to learn that without talking Mm -hmm. to somebody so it was like it was invaluable and uh so much of that stuff made it onto the album because it was just like yeah okay i'll I'll just lay down some guitar here and it it just elevated the 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 final chorus and it's just like wow i can't even hear it when i'm unless i really pay attention but i could definitely feel it and the energy's there and and yeah stuff like that it was just incredible and he's such a nice guy and he was each pdf like i I saved every pdf because like i said it's like a free college education and mixing yeah and um but he's such a just a really nice guy he was always really responsive and that's the only way i hit my deadline because i had um i don't know if you're aware of sound better i think it's like now maybe spotify bought them but i had i'd paid somebody a lot of money to mix one of the songs and because i was like i don't feel like i know what i'm doing so i want to see what a professional would do and it came back and was awful, not awful because mm. it was a bad mix. It was a great mix, fantastic mix, but it wasn't what I was going for. He, you know, he yeah. focused on the wrong instruments and the vibe wasn't there that I wanted. Um, so I was, I was just despondent because I was like, I'm not going to hit, I, there's no way I can get all this stuff mixed. And then when I found the mix consultancy, I was just like, this is fantastic. He's responsive. He's getting back to me quickly. I'm learning so much. I'm applying everything I learned to every other song that I'm not even asking about. And it was the only reason I got, I hit my deadline that I was trying to hit for the album. That's amazing. I'm, I'm going to uh, get in touch with, with Don Morley because I think he'd be a, a fantastic podcast um, interviewee. Um, so certainly something. I'll tell him I sent him and, and uh, tell him thanks again because he, he's definitely <laughs> saved my album. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I, what, what, what would have happened? I would have hit the deadline and then I would have obsessed about mm-hmm. it for the next five years of my life trying to make it even more perfect and then yeah so deadlines are important too i think that that's the only reason i got it out because like we were talking about earlier the perfectionism Mm -hmm. thing is just um is very hard to to control so having a just a date and being like okay make it as good as i can possibly do by this date and then put it in the world yeah totally i i totally second that and it's something that i've mentioned a few times on various other podcast episodes um, with other articles i usually ask the case of like do you set deadlines or do you just visit just a, a linear ongoing process and i personally i like to work to deadlines because without a deadline it would just go on and on and on and on um so definitely deadlines it, and it's great to hear that you're doing the similar thing and getting that feedback as well which is amazing and it's also interesting that you mentioned there about how you went on sound better and you got uh, a mix engineer to mix your music and i've heard this before uh, where someone approached me about mixing uh, one of their tracks and it was a case of they had somebody mix it and it sounded amazing, but because they weren't necessarily experienced is the wrong word, but maybe they didn't focus down particularly on that style of music. They just didn't capture the vibe of what the artist was going for. And um, so I think that's quite a pivotal thing to do. I think if you're going to outsource your mixing, 
or your project is to find someone. If you're going to go down that route, find someone who fully understands. Don't just necessarily go for the guy who's got the all the girl, um, who's got the best sort of back catalog or portfolio. You need to find someone who actually fully understands what it is you're you're trying to do. I don't know if you agree. Oh, absolutely, completely agree. And I was really lucky in the fact that the song I sent to him was um, the one with the most acoustic live drums that my brother had recorded, which. So it, it was actually super helpful because he mixed them great. And I ended up using that that drum mix in the final song. And uh, that would have been really difficult to do on my own, even with Dom's help, I think, from afar. Um, but yeah, no, I, I completely agree because it, it was a great mix. He's a super talented mm-hmm. engineer and a mixing engineer. And um, it was great. It just wasn't my style mm-hmm. of music and it wasn't the song. Like I wanted some of that harshness because of my background in like the noise rock and the more experimental stuff like i like the dissonance and i like a little bit of the harshness and things and yeah it was just a completely different style of music that came back uh with all the wrong things highlighted and some of my favorite parts were just like way Mm -hmm. down in the mix that you couldn't even hear or feel so yeah i think that's hugely important yeah you could have somebody that's an amazing mixing engineer but they're gonna mix it in a completely different style that you don't yeah due diligence i think that's where it comes into due diligence right there um, I realize now we're coming towards the hour mark, so um, I don't I don't want to keep too much of your time today. As amazing as it has been with this with this interview and conversation, but where uh, do you see one equals two going? You mentioned earlier about you were tinkering around with some sounds, creating some, coming up with some new ideas. Is there going to be a follow up album or EP? Big time, yeah. So I'm I'm really trying to get an EP out by December of this year, and. Like I said before, we just moved into a a new house. So I finally got the full studio back up and running. So this really has been my first week back in the driver's seat again. Um, And again, all the same, all the same self self doubts and there's no way I can do this and all that stuff is crept back in, which I thought I thought I had killed that with the first album. But no, it's all still there. (laughs) So I've had to revert back to just sitting in the chair. And again, like I said, uh, that that twisting that uh, fm knob had inspired something and i was like okay yeah this is how it this is how it went last time i at no point felt super confident like i was writing a hit at any stage it was just like all right just try stuff and then follow the inspiration and that's exactly where i'm back to um so i i want to try to at least get maybe a four song ep out but i'm running out of time so it's already june and i'm trying to get something out by december um but uh yeah if, <laughs> i guess worst case scenario maybe a couple singles but yeah i'm gonna try to at least get an ep out by december fantastic i'll keep an eye out and um and, and promote it well and, and share it with the with the audience um so i'm looking forward to that one so where where can our audience find you online where can they find your music so i scored a great domain name uh, many years ago like i said this has been a project that i knew was a long time coming so it's a four character domain so it's the number one eq and the number two.com. So one eq2.com. Um, so four characters, which looks sweet every time I type <laughs> it in. <laughs> but um, but yeah, that that'll link to like the Spotify and Bandcamp and Twitter, which I haven't posted on Twitter in over a year and a half. So I'll need to maybe start looking into social media, but it just doesn't uh doesn't really interest me too mm-hmm. much. But um, but yeah, and for uh one eq one eq2.com and everything links to from there so you can find everything fantastic and uh, i'll put all that in the show notes so the audience can go away and if they haven't done so already just and listen to that and um follow you on twitter um i find social media is a necessary evil i strongly 
strongly emphasize the word evil on that one um but no brandon thank you thank you so much for spending time with me today it's been great chatting about music growth mindset the ultra learning and like the the stories uh behind your music as well and and all that that it encompasses it's been fantastic so i cannot thank you enough for for spending the time with me today no it's been so much fun thanks for having me mark i really appreciate it no anytime my friend so i'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your sunday up in up in scotland and um i'll speak to you soon nice all right thanks again bye cheers bye Thank you so much for listening to the Inside the Mix podcast. Make sure to rate us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify. Just a friendly reminder before you go, don't miss out on your free test master at Synth Music Mastering. Imagine enhancing your music with my dedicated commitment to quality and that personalized touch. And guess what? It's absolutely free of charge. So claim your free test master now at synthmusicmastering.com or click on the link in the episode description.